Hello, and welcome back to the Land and Climate Podcast. My name's Alistair McEwen, and in this episode, I spoke to Jonas Yershow, Associate Professor at Stavanger University in Norway, about the development of oil and gas company Statoil, now renamed Equinor, to explore if or how Norway had escaped the so-called resource curse. These environmental policies have become less and less to almost non-existent in Norway's political debate. Norway has unfortunately been one of the few countries in Europe that actually has seen increases in its CO2 emissions since the 1990. I began by asking Jonas to explain Statoil and how it had grown over time. Statoil, or what's today known as Equinor, was the operational part of Norway's three-pronged oil resource model, or the oil model, together with the oil and energy department and the oil directorate. So the oil department set the rules, the oil directorate collected all the exploration data, and Statoil was the operational aspect to the Norwegian state's oil production in the North Sea. It was Norway's national champion and founded as such in the 1970s, a time where most oil-producing states had a national oil company, as opposed to the international oil companies, the private oil majors like uh, Exxon or Shell or BP. A lot of countries in the Middle East thought that they shouldn't just be receiving payment for international companies' operations in their countries. They should also receive technology and knowledge transfers. This was done through sort of state participation. And Statoil was Norway's way of actively engaging in the oil industry and transferring a lot of the technology required to operate offshore to Norway's economy, making sure that Norway just didn't become a producer of raw materials, but also industrial, maintain its sort of industrial lead. In terms of how it changed the Norwegian economy, can you say a little bit about that? The Norway's economy is this is a sort of conventional North European economy before the advent of these North Sea hydrocarbon resources. But after the 1970s and 80s, it very much became an oil economy. And here Statoil uh, played a very important role, obviously, as an operator on the oil fields and as a vehicle which gave contracts to Norwegian supply companies, oil supply companies, shipyards or other associated industries. And that's the role it's maintained and increasingly so today. Statoil used to be the largest listed company in the Nordic region. Now it's the second largest company, I think. When we think about the Norway's oil history, it's often what most political scientists remark is how it managed to avoid this Dutch disease or oil resource curse that other countries have managed to be inflicted by. And these are two separate phenomena. Dutch disease is that the oil sector usually becomes so profitable, so large, that it sort of crowds out the rest of the economy and makes, because of the currency appreciations and things, makes all the other export industries unprofitable, whilst the oil curse is usually associated with rent-seeking and the problems of, instead of engaging in, uh, when countries become very uh, wealthy, usually from oil, it becomes more profitable 
for agents within that political entity to position themselves for oil rents, to redistribute these rents within the nation rather than engaging in wealth-creating transactions that generates new wealth. This oil curse can also materialize in some developing countries and supporting autocratic regimes, for instance, or destabilizing the country. But this hasn't happened in a way because of how it's structured strong institutions, it's sort of centralized wage formation system, the export industries there, they set the wage rate and uh, all the other industries, including the oil uh, industry, follows that. That sort of prevents inflation. Another counter to these inflationary pressures is the oil fund or the sovereign wealth fund. In the 80s, Norway was increasing its oil production quite intensively, but there were worries that how this would impact the rest of the economy. So the, the way to solve that was to funnel these tax receipts into a sovereign wealth fund that was only allowed to invest internationally, so outside the noise economy. And this has proved very successful economically and politically in a way. But it was a vehicle to enable a very rapid tapping of noise, oil and gas reserves. It wasn't as a sort of visionary project for the future. And it's the biggest sovereign wealth fund now in, in the world. Yes, it is. I think it owns around 2% of all the shares in the world. This represents quite a temptation for Norwegian politicians. Also, as a consensus, political consensus of never really touching the principle, only using the proceeds of returns from the fund in the domestic economy. Where is Equinor now in terms of its development? There's been the recent, well, in the last few days, the, the approval of the Rose Bank oil field in, in the Shetlands, it doesn't seem like there's too much of a deceleration in Statoil's or Equinor's activity. Is that correct? Yeah, no. And this is a classical client principle problem. Statoil set up as an entirely government-owned political instrument in the 1970s. But over time, it became more and more depoliticized. In 1982, it was allowed to operate internationally as a sort of a consolation prize because the then conservative government took away 80% of its assets because they were worried that it was getting too big with the noise economy. From the 80s, and incidentally in China, that's where it's first operated internationally, there was these beliefs, uh, especially the, e, the, the UN thought that China had world's largest petroleum and uh, hydrocarbon reserves uh, in uh, offshore. Chinese authorities contacted uh, Norwegian authorities to emulate Norwegian's petroleum model. So China adapted Norwegian petroleum laws and petroleum uh, contract terms, and also Statoil, creating its own sort of offshore oil company. Now it's, I think that's one of the largest oil companies in the world. It expanded through the 80s in the, in the North Sea together with BP and this alliance. This BP had encountered quite substantial financial problems in the late 80s. It thought that Norway's Statoil had this windfall and they could sort of team up, and they did, and expanded internationally on BP's sort of coattails, where BP got like two-thirds of each license and Statoil got like a third. And that really bootstrapped its international expansion. And this was only a process that accelerated when the company was listed in 2001. Norwegian politicians promised never to intervene into operational decisions. So now you find 
the statal in a way is, doesn't have any accountability because the Norwegian state still retains two thirds of ownership of the shares. That's the largest shareholder, essentially the, the owner of the company. But the owners said that it would never intervene in its operational decisions. The statal now has just become a law unto itself in a way. It's the executives head the company completely as engaged in this international expansion to avoid the company from dying on the Norwegian continental shelf. It doesn't want to follow the production profile in the Norwegian continental shelf. It wants to expand internationally to avoid that. So it has engaged in what has been mostly a very unprofitable international expansion since the 80s and 90s. And this carries on. It's latest yesterday, it's developing a new field of Shetland, uh, the Rosebank project. Together with the financially not very advantageous sort of international expansion, the company has increased the granting of contracts to Norwegian oil supply companies. So that builds legitimacy for, for its continued sort of international expansion. And so is there any realistic transition that Equinor is going through with renewable energy? They have started uh, investing in offshore wind farms, but the last time I checked, I believe that uh, represented like less than a percentage point of the overall balance sheet. They now insist on being called an energy company rather than a, an oil company, but there's still quite a small proportion of their overall operations that is in renewable energy. Can you explain a little bit how the Sovereign Wealth Fund ties into kind of this persistence in using oil and gas? Yeah, so if it hadn't been for the Sovereign Oil Fund, you couldn't produce as much oil and gas as, as has been the case, simply because Norway is such a small economy, then you'd have this very, very substantial Dutch disease. Just in terms of how Norway responds to kind of a new, well, an energy transition, where does it stand now in relation to how it's developed a Statoil or Equinor and how it could actually adapt? So Norway is an interesting case in terms of its environmental policies, I suppose, and it's all policies because it's such a stark example of opposites. Norway in the 70s and 80s was a pioneer in green policies. It had Britain was first, but Norway was second in having an environmental you know, secretary for the environment. Norway's prime minister, Gil Harlem Bidentland, presented our common future, that coined the term sustainability in the UN in 1987. And this is, I suppose, a path-dependent trajectory for a large oil producer, is that these environmental policies have become less and less to almost non-existent in Norway's political debate. The focus, instead of, of cutting production or emissions at home, uh, have been replaced by uh, suggestions that you should have an international quota trading system, CO2 quotas. Uh, incidentally, systems invented by Jens Stoltenberg, the former prime minister of Norway and, and now secretary general of NATO, thus using sort of the market mechanism to make the cuts where it's most profitable to do so. The problem is that this warrants a sort of global system of, of quotas that as of yet hasn't transpired and also using new technology to counteract these emissions or remove them altogether through this carbon capture and storage where they extract the CO2 from the oil platforms or the, the, the gas power plants and store the CO2 in, in the old reservoirs. But this has also not transpired owing to cost. Sleipner projects 
and the Norwegian projects around carbon capture and storage are often referred to as the biggest successes in carbon capture and storage. Yeah, one of the biggest sort of sticks to beat Stoltenberg with in Norway was his announcement in the 2000s of, of Norway's moon landing, where the refinery outside Bergen called Mongstar was supposed to be sort of carbon neutral by by um, installing this CCS system. Even that was never installed. Norway is, um, has unfortunately been one of the few countries in Europe that actually has seen increases in its CO2 emissions since the 1990. Almost all the other countries in Europe has just reduced it around 20%. Norway has increased it like 5% and owing to the oil industry. And they're also opening up new sort of licenses in, in the Barents Sea as well. So there's no plan on lowering this uh, intensity in its um, exploration or, or development of these uh, hydrocarbon resources. It's said that Norway kind of escaped the resource curse. But then when we look at the potential transition to new resources around renewable energy, and then it's going to be hit quite hard, arguably. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, it's the way it escaped the economic resource curse by disseminating the oil rent throughout its economy and its population through the state participation model of oil production that's also how it's built this substantial lobby or constituency that's in favour, that has a very strong vested interest in, in perpetuating the oil and gas production and thus preventing any sort of green transition. Thanks very much to Jonas Yersho for his time. As usual, you can find further reading on this subject on our podcast blurb. And we'll be back again in a couple of weeks with an interview on another topic. Thanks also to Vasco Kostovsky for editing and producing this program. And until next time, thanks for listening.